I'm Steve Kerwood, and here at Living on Earth, we're trying something new. Twice a week on Mondays and Wednesdays, we're offering you shorter versions of our show with some of our favorite segments. You can still hear our weekly Living on Earth podcast with the full hour, first available on Fridays, and all of our long and short shows are in your podcast app archive. Today, we'll hear about new research that suggests the novel coronavirus is more deadly in areas with a history of air pollution. And we'll have some tips for getting outside with children during this time of social distancing. But first, your support helps make it possible to bring you this podcast, so please contribute what you can. $5 or more makes a difference. You can donate right now at LOE.org. Now for today's program. The novel coronavirus is more deadly in areas with many years of high air pollution, researchers are now saying. Biostatisticians at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health compared death rates from COVID-19 in 3,000 counties with air quality records and found that in areas with just a small increase in long-term rates of fine particle pollution, 15% more people are likely to be killed by the virus. And researchers at the University of Siena in northern Italy also suggest there is an association between the region's long history of high air pollution and the high pandemic death rates. For some perspectives, we turn now to pediatrician Aaron Bernstein, who is the interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at Harvard, though he did not work on the Harvard study. Since the particulates in air pollution seem to increase the lethality of the coronavirus, I asked Dr. Bernstein to start our conversation by explaining just what they are. Particulate matter air pollution refers to anything that's suspended in the air. So that could be from burning wood, it could be from gravel that's ground up on the ground and put into the air, or even dirt or salt that gets, you know, washed up from the shores into the air or off farms into the air. But it also can come from burning fossil fuels. And it's generally treated by its size. So we say there's particulate matter of 10 microns in diameter, particulate matter of two and a half microns on diameter. And the air rules for the United States, the air quality rules, tend to focus on so-called PM 2.5. That's about 120th the size of a human hair. So why are those particles such a health problem? Yeah. So lots of research has shown that the more particulate matter uh, people breathe, the more likely they are to die, particularly if you're older. We know that they cause heart attacks and strokes. We know that they cause lung cancer. There's now strong evidence that these particles can also promote the development of type 2 diabetes, mental health problems, affect the developing fetus, so uh, may see uh, poor growth and maybe early birth. And there's increasing evidence that they may be damaging brains, may be a cause of dementia, may be a cause of some disorders in children we see like autism. But the bottom line is, particulate matter is just generically really bad for us. <laughs> and in many places in the world, including the United States, the major sources from burning fossil fuels, in other places where people are using indoor cook stoves, for instance, and burning wood or dung or other things in their homes, that's a major source. And all told, particulate matter in the world is killing like somewhere between 7 and 10 million people every year, mostly in Asia. And it's, you know, in the top 10 causes of death, maybe in the top five by some estimates. And what are those numbers here in the United States? 
So there's probably on the order of 100,000 to 200,000 people who die every year from particulate matter in the United States. That death toll is not distributed evenly across the United States population. If you're poor, if you're African-American, if you're Latino, your odds of getting sick and dying from particulate matter are much higher than other folks. And, you know, we know that, of course, short of death, there are a lot of bad things that happen to people from air pollution. I, as a pediatrician, know that air pollution can be a major risk for everything from ear infections to pneumonias. And, you know, in people who are older, air pollution, particulate matter air pollution, can cause heart attacks and strokes. And as a pediatrician, I imagine you see a fair amount of asthma. Yep. We also know that particulate matter is a major both cause, meaning it would take a child who wouldn't have had asthma and lead them to have asthma. But also, of course, children already have asthma are more likely to have trouble breathing. And that's also true for adults. Adults who have chronic lung diseases uh, who get exposed to particulate matter are much more likely to have a hard time breathing. What's the relationship between particulates and, and climate disruption, climate change? Well, it's, you know, sort of the same problem. Around 70% of the carbon emissions in the world come from burning fossil fuels. And as I mentioned before, a huge amount of death is happening because of particulate matter air pollution that also come from burning fossil fuels. And so, you know, you, you get a win-win there. If you get off fossil fuels, you get rid of huge burdens of disease right now. I think that's critical, which is, you know, we don't wait for months or years when you stop burning coal in a power plant and convert it to renewables. The change in health happens right now, and particularly in the places where that coal plant stops burning coal. And of course, that means there's also less carbon emissions, which protects the climate moving forward. Now, explain to me why uh, air pollution then is apparently increasing uh, a COVID patient's uh, risk of dying from the disease, as some recent papers have indicated. Yeah. So had you asked me that question a couple of weeks ago, I would have said, well, we have lots of evidence from other even viral infections, including SARS, which is sort of the first cousin of COVID. It's also a coronavirus. It also came to people from bats. That particulate pollution, particulate matter air pollution, is a major reason for people to get sick and potentially die from these infections. But in the last week, we've had evidence now specifically on COVID in the United States showing that very small changes in the amount of air particles that people have been exposed to over the long term. So these are not the day-to-day -day fluctuations, but this is over many months. So if you've lived in a place with overall worse air pollution, the death rate increases by 15% for every one microgram per meter cubed of air pollution, particulate matter air pollution. Now, to put that in context, you know, in Boston, the air quality right now, the particulate matter levels are about five micrograms per meters cubed. You know, on a bad day, it gets up 15 to 20. Many places in the United States are 30. But one microgram per meter cubed difference over the long haul, right, this is over extended periods, leading to a 15% increase in the death rate from COVID. And that's, by the way, doing statistics to try and account for the health status of the people who are affected. So whether you are sicker at baseline or not, they also, in this study, looked at people's access to healthcare. So were there hospitals available to you or not? They looked at people's socioeconomic status, so whether you were rich or poor, and a host of other things that, of course, should matter to whether someone's likely to die. And even accounting for all those things, they still found that these small differences in air pollution mattered to whether or not you were going to die from this disease. So we've seen, of course, just horrific 
death rates uh, so far in places like New York City, uh, northern New Jersey, seems to be question of what might be going on in Louisiana and in Michigan. In many of these places, it's been tied to ethnicity. It's been tied to the African-American community. It's been tied to the Hispanic community. What's going on there, do you think? So one of the you know guesses about what's going on there is that, for one thing, many minority communities in this country do not have equal access to health care at baseline, meaning if they have a little bit of heart disease, they might not have the same level of care as other folks. And so it's possible that some of this is, is reflective of barriers to care, inequality in access to care, and other social determinants of health that can drive whether or not people might live or die. But, you know, this new evidence, and frankly, in conjunction with the old evidence, is worrisome because we know that African Americans and Latino Americans are disproportionately exposed to air pollution. There have been many studies showing this. And so, you know, we now have the challenge to sort out whether, in fact, this signal that it's emerging, which is minority communities, particularly African-Americans, potentially Latinos, are at increased risk of dying because of air pollution in their communities. You know, if that turns out to be the case, it would be yet another kick in the pants around why, frankly, climate actions are so important. You know, I've been saying for the past several weeks that climate actions are pandemic prevention actions. And a lot of folks, I think, understandably get rankled by that. How can you be talking about climate change when people are dying of an infectious disease right now? And my answer to that is is pretty easy, which is if someone's having a heart attack and they're getting their, you know, heart reperfused with blood, you know, you're not talking about what they're eating and whether they're smoking and whether they're exercising when they're on the table getting (laughs) their blood vessel open. And that's probably because they're asleep, by the way. But the moment they're awake, there's someone in that room saying, you know, we've got to do better to prevent this. And what we know now about COVID, and this is true not just with the air pollution piece, but it has to also do with our diets. We know now that our health, the population health of people in this country is a huge factor in how we deal with something like COVID. So air pollution may matter, our diets may matter. So there was an op-ed published in the New York Times a week or so ago by colleagues of mine at Boston Children's saying, you know, we are not healthy enough to go back to work (laughs) because of our diets and the rates of obesity in this country and how we know that the rates of mortality from COVID are heavily dependent on pre-existing medical conditions, the lion's share of which are preventable through dietary changes. And we know, of course, that eating, for example, more plants, less red meat is enormously helpful for our health right now and also, of course, for the climate. What kind of impact on public health do you think the Trump administration's uh, decisions to indefinitely relax the enforcement of certain environmental regulations, including air pollution, what could this have right now in the midst of the coronavirus, do you think? Yeah, it's hard to know. It's a good question. A lot of people have been really concerned about the EPA's decision to essentially allow polluters to not really pay so much attention to their pollution. In light of the research that came out this week, I think there's heightened concern here because if even small increments in air pollution occur, especially in communities that we know are at risk, that decision now looks a little less wise. You know, I do my best to operate in good faith that the folks who are trying to steer us right now are doing the best job they can. 
But I think that what we, we, we owe it to everybody to do is to try and use science as best we can to make the case as to why certain decisions might be changed or why certain decisions should stand. And I think this is a very good example, which is we now have evidence people may be much more sensitive to air pollution with disease than we previously understood. Does that matter to the decision of the EPA? I would say it absolutely does. I should note that for the last three years, air pollution in the United States has gotten worse for the first time in decades. Not clear why that is, but you know this is concerning because from a regulatory standpoint, there's no reason for that to happen. So we already have this uptick in air pollution. Now we have evidence that air pollution may be more risky, and we potentially have an EPA that's saying, let's not pay as much attention to air pollution. That would certainly give me pause, particularly for those folks in our communities that are most at risk. Ari, before you go... What advice do you have as a physician to people going through this COVID pandemic, ways beyond the usual things uh, we hear to enhance uh, our own health and that of of our children and our elders, people that we care about? Yeah, it's a great question, Steve. Let me try and answer it in, in the domain that's closest to my own, which is, you know, what do you tell children who've been kept out of school and kept away from friends and maybe hard to understand what's going on in some ways because all children sort of get infections. Many of them had ear infections, throat infections, and they're sort of, you know, they get over them. And this is just so wildly different. So for children out there uh, and, you know, for their parents and grownups who are, who are listening, you know, I think there's a couple of important things to know. One is that it's important to take care of ourselves right now. That doesn't mean binging on French fries. Uh, <laughs> what what it does mean is keeping with the routines as much as we can that that happened you know before we were asked to stay home and to the extent we can engage with our friends through computers and the internet to the extent that we can continue our schoolwork to the extent we can maintain those routines that's great i also think that you know the things that we're being asked to do washing our hands all the time keeping our physical distance from others are good for protecting ourselves and our families, but they're also, of course, done primarily to protect people most at risk, right? So most children are not affected as severely and they may not have symptoms. And so one might reasonably say, well, I'm not really protecting myself if I'm a child. (laughs) The real reason is we're protecting people who are more at risk. And, you know, there aren't a lot of silver linings in this mess, but one of them could be that we cultivate a cohort of children here who really get that we do things not always for ourselves. That sometimes the right thing to do, which may not be something that we would do for ourselves otherwise, is important to do because it saves lives. It keeps the people in our communities healthy, that we make decisions that matter beyond ourselves. And there's been no experience in recent memory that has made it clearer than this one that our health is absolutely tied to the communities we live in and to the living world, and that we simply must move forward on that basis if we want to make sure that our children grow up to have the opportunities and health that so many of us have enjoyed. And so that's the kind of thing I think is, is really important to talk to our children about these days. Aaron Bernstein is the Interim Director of the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital. Ari, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks for having me, Steve. 
On April 5th, BioBlitz brought together 300-plus participants at a social distance in 27 countries who took photos of plants and animals close to home and used the iNaturalist app to identify and log in those observations for scientists. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom took part along with her husband Mark and daughter Sage and Luna, aged 5 and 2. They got started at the kitchen window with a view of their bird feeders. Looking for birdies. What do we see? A woodpecker. How do you know it's a woodpecker? Because it pecks. I see another animal underneath the other bird feeder. What do you see, Luna? I think that's a squirrel. Well, let me get a picture of the squirrel so we can um, share it on the app. So cute. Now I'm going to hit the green share button. Okay, I loaded our picture of the squirrel, and it gives me a few suggestions for what kind of squirrel it could be. But what do you think? Which kind of squirrel do you think it looks like of these pictures here? Let's see. Put your phone on the window. Oh, you want to hold it closer? Okay. Now what do you think? Which one does it look like? That one. Eastern gray squirrel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Why do you think it looks like that one? Because it's in a yard. <laughs> yeah, it's in a yard. And it looks just the same. Oh, look, look, look. What's that one? I think that's a red bird. It's a red bird. What kind of red, what kind of birdie is that? Cardinal. Is it a boy? Yeah, I think it is a boy. Why do you think it's a boy, Seiji? Because it's much more prettier. The boys are much prettier? Are they brighter red? We have a bunch of species here. I think there's a chickadee up there. There's several, and there's some type of thrush down there. We're not getting pictures of them. It's happening too fast. I'll go outside and look for more animals. Okay, that's a great idea. Yay, let's go. All right, let's go get our boots on. I need help getting down. Luna, come on. Um, I got my boots. Oh, you're all set. We should start in our backyard. Okay, let's start in our backyard. That's a great idea. What are they having for treats today? They're having peanut butter and bugs. Peanut butter and bugs? Yeah. All right, well, these count. Let's take a picture. What should we do next, honey? Follow me. Keep your eyes open, Luna. Luna, what do you see? A robin. You see a robin? Luna, do you want to look under a log? Yeah. Let's do it. Come on. I will hold it. What is I don't know that? If you want to hold that. That might bite, actually. No, I remember it doesn't bite. Here's a worm for you, Luna. A worm. It's so cool. Luna, worms are good for our garden. Because they make more soil. Let's roll the log back and give the wormies their home. There's another log over there. I'll turn it. <gasps> a worm! Oh, oh. I'll hold it, I'll hold it. Yep, there's a creepy crawly right there. I'll see. Creepy crawly? Creepy crawly? 
very creepy crawly. I don't even want to be holding it myself. Creepy crawly. Creepy. Excuse me. Creep. Creep. I love you. Do you guys hear that? Cutie baby. You tickle too much. Is it tickling your hand? Look, girls, what's that in the tree? You see that blue bird there in the tree? It just flew down to a bush. AJ calling, actually. I can hear it calling. And there's a cardinal in the tree, too. All right, what should we do now, Sergi? I'm done. Let's go inside and get a treat. Get a treat? Yeah! Was this fun? Yeah. It was fun getting the mama taking the treats. All right, well, let's head back in. That's Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom and her family, Mark, Sage, and Luna, who submitted 17 entries for the BioBlitz. For pictures of some of the creepy crawlies they found, visit the Living on Earth website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Dory, Jay Feinstein, Merlin Hajiomeri, Candace Seawing G, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lierstein composed our theme. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.